0: You're listening to The Feed.
1: This is The Feed.
0: This is The Feed. The Feed. You're listening to The Feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to The Feed in Vaughan.
1: In Stouffville.
2: In Woodbridge. In Unionville.
3: You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events That matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on the show today, the highlights and the wrap-up from what some call North America's fastest-growing tech conference, known as Collision. Mayor Frank Scarpetti joins us a little later on to explain how Markham is setting up a space for innovators and entrepreneurs to come together. Also ahead, how you can help Habitat for Humanity right here in the region. But we begin with a public health concern. Christy Laverty with the details.
4: So today we're going to be talking about something that's popped up often in recent years, even in the recent weeks, and it's ticks. So joining us today is Kimberly Gray from York Public Health. Uh, Thank you for joining us. And again, um, for this purpose of this interview, you have a very unique title. Tell us what it is that you do. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, I am the Zoonotic Diseases
5: Coordinator with York Region Public Health. So it's all things related to animals and insects and arachnids that bite people and give them diseases and viruses.
4: So kids probably think that's really super exciting. Adults (laughs) maybe (laughs) creeps them out a little bit. But it works for this topic because we're going to talk about black-legged ticks. It's excellent. It's something that's sort of cropped up recently, as I mentioned. And, you know, particularly with the warmer weather, people are sort of coming out of hibernation and heading outdoors, hikes, walking the dog, you know, going on some trail hikes. And this time of year, we see ticks. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, they hear that and that associated Lyme disease. And it scares them because maybe they don't know enough about uh, what they should be looking for. So maybe first talk to us a little bit about why black-legged ticks are something we should be concerned with.
5: Yes. Um Actually, black-legged ticks have been making their way into Canada for um, a couple of years now. Uh, there are some areas that actually have had black-legged ticks for at least a couple of decades uh, down on the northern shores of Lake Erie. But we're starting to see them in more numbers here in the Greater Toronto area and in York region as well. And so this is something that um, is going to continue to happen. Their habitat is spreading. And so we have to start thinking about ticks in our day-to-day. Years ago, we used to start um, having to remind ourselves to take sunscreen with us when we go outdoors, and now it's habit. So this is um, protecting yourself for ticks eventually is going to be uh, something similar to what we do for sun, sun protection. So ticks Their habitat is really expanding. We're seeing an increase in ticks. And basically, there is nothing we can do. They're here to stay. And so we really have to change the way that we think about ticks. And, um, you know, we want to be out and we want to be active. Like, you know, it was was not that great of a winter. We deserve Mm. to go out and enjoy ourselves and be active. And so what we really want to remind people is that, it's great to go outdoors, just remember a few simple sense precaution um tips that uh you can do to protect yourself when you go outdoors and enjoy the enjoy nature, go hiking, you know go camping like this is we want that, so just remember to protect yourself
4: and really it's you know like anything else that we do when we're out, and you know people understand to protect against mosquitoes and other annoying insects out there. Um, so yes. ticks, ticks are the same, and it's not complicated. There's some pretty easy things that we can all do, uh, you know, before we head out to on the hike or head out to conservation area with the kids and the dogs.
5: Absolutely. You know, the great thing is about ticks that if you're protecting yourself from mosquitoes, you're doing it for ticks as well. It's, it's you know... Um, you know, it's it's a double whammy when it comes to what we're protecting ourselves from. And so, um basically the thing to remember with ticks is wear light colored clothing. We wear light colored clothing for mosquitoes because they're not quite attracted to us, but when it comes to ticks, it's not quite so. But the thing is it's really easy to spot ticks on you when you're wearing light colored clothing. So if you're heading outdoors, wear the light colored pants and long sleeve shirts and I know it's not a great fashion um, uh, thing to do, but tuck your pants in your socks because that actually stops them from coming up at the inside of your pant legs. And the other great thing that you have to remember is to wear insect repellent. So make sure that you're wearing insect repellent that contains DEET beet or a keratin. They both work great. Uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada actually recommends a keratin for children. You can find products with a keratin at any one of your um, uh, pharmacies or major supercenters. And then last but not least, when you're coming home, make sure you sell, do a tick check of everyone that was outdoors. Um, showering afterwards is a great way to wash off any unattached ticks and also check yourself. So that tick check is really important, and if you do find a tick, remove it as quickly as possible. And also check your pets. Pets can actually um, attract ticks running through the uh, undergrowth in conservation areas and forested areas. And if you have any questions about the health of your pets, speak to your vet.
4: Now, when it comes to ticks, are they a seasonal thing? Or, you know, can we experience ticks spring, summer, even those sort of later days of late summer, early warm fall? Is that... Is there a season associated with Yeah, ticks? you know, that's a great question. Um, before, like, we actually
5: see black legged ticks in spring and fall um, without doubt. They don't like the really hot summer months but there are other ticks that emerge at that time. Not the kind that spreads Lyme disease but, you know, it's it's kind of, ew, um, don't want something feeding on me uh, factor but um, with, with black legged ticks, they are most active in spring and fall but they're active once the temperatures go above zero degrees and there's no snow. Mm -hmm. So if we have an early spring, they're going to be out early. And if we have a fall that runs, you know, late into November, early December, they'll be active until then. Um, so, that's when we see the peak times for black-legged ticks, absolutely spring and fall. And that's when we really need to pay attention. But then in those summer months, we have mosquitoes that spread to West Nile that become active. So, when we're looking at protecting ourselves, it really is, you know, once the snow is gone and the temperatures go above zero, especially if you're going into natural areas where the black-legged tick lives.
4: Right. and And one of the things, you've mentioned it already, but... Obviously, the issue for people that we don't want anything sucking on us, but there is some risk associated with this black legged tick and its Lyme disease. But it's important to note that not every black legged tick is, you know, a risk to carry Lyme disease, correct?
5: Um, but knowing if you're bitten by a black-legged tick, and if it's attached more than 24 hours, so it takes 24 hours for the tick to actually pass along the bacteria to you, um, that's when you enter like a, a higher risk situation. Um, so... Most of York Region is actually um, a risk area for Lyme disease uh, and and huge swaths of um, Greater Toronto area. So we know that they're here, and um, they do test positive on occasion. But it's hard to tell, looking at it, whether or not it is actually carrying it.
4: So, you know, that check after you've been outdoors is really, really important, obviously, to be looking for. And if you haven't seen a tick before what are we looking for what does it look like so that people know what they're they're actually looking for and they don't necessarily just show up on your pant leg correct you you should be looking for all areas on your body.
5: Yes. You know, um ticks, they can be as small as a poppy seed in the nymph stage and that's actually like what we consider an adolescent tick, a nymph stage, and it's not quite adult yet, but that's the most dangerous part of the life cycle stage because they can attach and you have no idea, especially if they're attached in the scalp area or in another part of your body where you can't really see it so well. Um and so the size of a poppy seed, these ticks can be that small. And they can go up to about the size of a sesame seed, the adults, but of course when they start feeding they get a little bit bigger. Um ticks they have eight legs, they don't jump, they don't fly. And they move rather slowly, so they take their time crawling up the inside of your clothing to find a nice, dark, quiet place to feed. And they can attach for up to five to seven days. And so that's why it's really important to remove them as soon as possible. And do that tick check. There's great resources available out there, including our website, where you can look at pictures of black-legged ticks. And, of course, if you have any questions, if you found something, the Internet's a great
4: resource. And then if you think you do have a tick, you can always bring it in to us and we can take a look at it for you. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been a great conversation and something, you know, it's just about changing our habits when we're heading outdoors and, you know, being aware of of what's out there, and not letting us, letting it stop us from enjoying the outdoors in York Region. Thank you so much, Kimberly Gray from Public Health York Region Public Health for chatting all things ticks with us. And uh, hopefully, people now armed with information still going to go out there and enjoy York Region and all that's uh, there as far as the outdoors. It was a long winter, so we need to get out from our hibernation.
5: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
3: You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Earlier this week, Collision, one of North America's fastest-growing tech conferences, brought together buyers, sellers, and consumers of technology. On site for the week was Markham
6: Mayor Frank Scarpitti, and he joins us next with what it means for York Region. Collision Conference, North America's fastest growing tech conference, just wrapped up in Toronto. And we have Markham Mayor Frank Scarpetti joining us on the feed, who's going to uh, talk to us about what happened throughout the conference. And of course, the amazing announcement that came out that uh, the city of Markham is going to be creating an innovation hub called The Mix. Mayor Frank Scarpetti, thank you so much for joining me today.
7: Thank you. I'm excited to be here to talk about this. and really, just to step back a bit, uh, both uh, Mayor John Tory and I went to Web Summit last year in Lisbon. We were the only two uh, Canadian mayors there to really kind of get a sense of what collision was going to be like. And Web Summit is the largest tech conference uh, in the world, and it was an incredible experience to see you know, the whole spectrum of uh, the thought leaders that were on different stages, the main stage and spread throughout the conference, the, the companies uh, that were there, the, uh, the CEOs, again, that were there were speaking, and then, of course, uh, some of the startups. And it was just a, one, an amazing array of, of talent. And, and really, a Collision, on a smaller scale, but just uh, a truly impactful for us, because this is the first time Collision, which is North America's largest, tech conference uh, is being held outside of the United States. And they recognize that uh, the GTA is now the fastest growing tech hub in in all of North America. And this was a place that they wanted to bring Collision to. And I can say that they have not been disappointed with the turnout and and the engagement uh, for the people that came out for Collision. Again, an incredible, incredible uh, spectrum of both uh, thought leaders, industry leaders, and more importantly, startups. I mean, the people that are out there thinking of the new ideas, the new services, uh, embracing technology in almost every aspect of our life, and how they're turning those thoughts, those that creativity into uh, into businesses. So, quite a quite an incredible, uh, you know, sort of uh, I, collision is truly the right word. Collision of uh, of different uh, industry leaders and, and uh, innovators all under one roof.
6: I think that's the perfect word, as you just mentioned, collision, because the number of people that came out and and they're big headliners in terms of the people that came out to this conference, from producers to um, small sector innovators. I mean, just the amount of ideas that were probably um, transferred between uh, one person to another, a company to another, it almost it it gets you excited as to what's coming up in the future, not even just for North America, but now for the GTA um, specifically, now that the conference was being held here. Here. And, of course, the in- announcement that you made that uh, the Markham Innovation Hub or the Markham Innovation Exchange, rather, also known as the MIX, um, is coming to Markham. Talk to us about
7: that. So this is something we've been working on for uh, some time. Uh, there, there, In total, there's 1,900 uh, acres that we're earmarking as the Markham Innovation Exchange, the MIX, uh, as a, a place to start this new innovation district. And actually, I was very encouraged by one of the sessions I went to Collision where representatives of San Francisco, Chicago, New York uh, were on a panel together talking about how they, uh, in fact, had developed uh, innovation districts and what it was doing for their cities. And so Markham is already known as the second uh, largest IT hub uh, in the country with over 1,500 IT companies here and uh, over 37,000 employees uh, that are part of the uh, the industry in the city of Markham. And we have the tech giants. We have the IBM. We have IBM Software Lab, which is the largest of its kind in Canada. We have AMD. We have General Motors with the Canadian Technical Center. So those are the, the large tech giants that are, are in our community already. This is an opportunity to really get Startups and scale-ups, the ones that ultimately one day could be one of these big companies uh, located in our community, but get them at a point where they're growing. And companies like this want to be in close proximity to each other. One of the things the panel has said, studies have shown that when, when startups and scale-ups are in close proximity to each other, there is actually a greater, uh, a greater success rate for those, uh, for those companies. And so that's what we want to create, recognizing that Martham took actually the bold step out of the 1,900 acres that are in this area. Uh, 400 uh, we actually went out and purchased because we want to be able to both control and ensure that the vision is, is carried out. So when you combine that kind of opportunity right up against the 404, very close proximity to a, a go station for the goal line, which, which will have access to the regional express rail system of, of frequent service from a geographic location, it's right, and then you combine that with the international talent that has come to Markham from every corner of the world. Uh, new Canadians who come here, highly educated, highly skilled. That's the type of talent that these startups and scale-ups are, are looking for in order to grow and succeed. As the uh, as the all almost every industry changes, they're they're going to need these types of uh, of workforce uh, within their company.
6: Do you have a rough estimate as to when um, the 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 mix is actually going to um, start being built and will be up for business in Markham?
7: So in many respects, yesterday uh, we were very pleased with the response. Very pleased with the people that came to the announcement that created a bit of a buzz on the. on the conference floor, and, and to be honest with you, I, I didn't think it was going to be possible, just given the description I told you about how much is going on there. But mm-hmm. uh, We got a lot of attention and certainly a lot of media attention. In many respects, uh, this uh, event yesterday was a preview to a more formal launch of the area in the fall, and what we'll be doing is getting ready to put out uh, requests for proposals, and so that will go so again... It will cast the net very wide to include uh, potential developers, uh, certainly real estate people, uh, foreign investors that are looking to invest into Markham and into Canada, and, and really see what comes back. Because at the end of the day, it won't be the city itself that will be developing this area. It will be done through the private sector. And what we're going to be able to do is to control uh, both how and, uh, you know, the phasing of that development so that, again, we ensure that this remains uh, an innovation district. And, by the way, it won't have just startup companies. It will also have the, the type of attractions and amenities that, uh, you, you know, the people that work in that industry are looking for. So it will be a place that offers up a lot more than just space to work in And so when we're going to be looking for partners, we're going to want to make sure that that, that they have the financial capability, that they uh, agree with the vision that the city of Markham has set out for it, and that they're going to be able to carry it through and, and make it a reality.
6: I know that this uh, is going to be something that a lot of people are going to be having their eyes on in the near future, especially to see what's going to be coming out. This can only mean uh, good news and and great things for the city of Markham and, of course, for the GTA moving forward. Uh, Markham Mayor Frank Scarpetti, thanks so much for joining me today.
7: Thank you.
3: Coming up later this month is a conference hosted by Victim Services of York Region and joining us to tell us a bit more about it is the Executive Director, Jillian Freeman. Jillian, welcome to The Feed.
8: Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure and honor.
3: Can you tell us a little bit about Victim Services of York Region and about your work?
8: Definitely. Uh, Victim Services of York Region is a not-for-profit charitable organization working in partnership with York Regional Police, the Ontario Provincial Police and York Fire Services to provide 24-hour crisis intervention support to persons victimized by crime or tragic circumstance. Our service delivery model is based on the principles of empowerment and prevention through education and advocacy.
3: Can you tell us a little bit about some of
8: the programs that you provide? Definitely. We have, an, we have our main program, which is our on-scene crisis response program. So we attend a home, a hospital, a crime scene, or a police station to assist on cases of homicide, human trafficking, domestic violence, sexual assault, traffic f- fatalities, suicide, suicides, and much more. So uh, generally, uh, most things that make it in the media in terms of what's happening in our region, our organization would be involved in it. We also have a telephone crisis program where clients can ring in for some support and we also reach out for clients. Let's say for example there was a domestic violence incident and mom just wants to tuck her wee ones in bed at the time and uh, she would say, but can you ring me in the morning and let's all get a, a, a night's sleep for now? Then we also have a program called Project Angel, which stands for the Automated Notification GPS Emergency Locator System. And what that essentially is, it's sort of a um alarm that they wear around their neck, which is unique then from a home safety alarm in the sense that they're programmed to directly call nine one one and there's two way two way voice modulators on them. When the client depresses it in an emergency situation, a nine one one operator speaks through the alarm. And at the same time the GPS system becomes activated, and the 911 operator can see on their computer the ac- actual GPS loca- location of the client. So those are for high-risk clients, and we only have about 10 uh, alarms right now for the whole region, so essentially these are homicides waiting to happen, unfortunately. Uh, lastly, one of the other programs that we run is a suicide improvement support group for persons who have experienced the loss of a loved one as a result of suicide. Uh, This program is just about to start soon and we do have a few spots available, so if anyone's interested in participating in the support group, they can ring our office or visit
3: our website. Now, is victim services open to volunteers and is training provided?
8: Yes. um, It would be difficult to run a 24-7 service without volunteers because we are a small not-for-profit organization. Uh, So we train approximately 40 volunteers a year, and the training hours for that are around 60 hours of complete training uh, in classroom, and then they have, I think, another 60 hours of online class training that they complete along with an exam
3: and some field work. And then what exactly are volunteers doing? Are they the the persons at the other end of the phone? Would they be on site for you know, some sort of crisis management? What exactly do the volunteers do?
8: We have a number of different roles that our volunteers can take on. So uh, we definitely have sponsoring volunteers who would go out on call. They usually go out with one of our staff members who all have their master's degree in social work. So um, they would go out with uh, staff on homicide or human trafficking matter. In terms of in-office, they can assist with calls in the office if they want and then different programs. So in the... Winter, we're coming up soon in September, we have a back-to-school program, so we last year we assisted 15,000 clients approximately, and uh, many of whom are marginalized or struggling financially, so we do a back-to-school program for our clients specifically, and not just the backpacks, but, you know, moms struggle to get indoor shoes and outdoor shoes, so... Someone can sponsor a full family and we give them the sizes of the children's feet and some clothes so these youngsters can start the school off like everyone else with a brand new outfit and the spring in their step and hopefully that leads them to some success and, you know, some lunch treats that they can pack that are uh, non-perishable obviously so that they, and a brand new backpack so they really do fit in and can start their school year off on the right foot. And then we have the a Winter Sponsorship Program, where instead of uh, toys, we do the same thing. Many clients struggle to get boots and snowsuits, and, you know, I know um, that's expensive for me, and I'm gainfully employed. So when you talk about hats and gloves and snowsuits and all of those pieces, uh, they're quite expensive. And then maybe a set of pajamas, some knickers, some socks, a book or a toy um, is the main uh, goal for our winter sponsorship program, so volunteers help with those as well.
3: A lot of amazing work for sure. Now, we started this conversation talking about how there is a conference coming up later this month for National Victims and Survivors of Crime Week. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
8: Yes, we're so excited. We have um, a conference that's occurring on May 29th and the 30th, and people can purchase tickets for both days or one either or. The day one we have rarely seen in Canada is Dr Dr. John Douglas and he's known for his role, um, his real life role in Silence of the Lambs and the popular Netflix Netflix series Mindhunter. Uh we're also thrilled that Mary Lee Metcalf, who is a retired officer that worked on the Bernardo Homoka investigation and later on the Jessup matter. And our last keynote speaker is uh, Air India's director of the Victims and Families Association, Sushil Gupta, who will be discussing um, mass tragedies and how to be of assistance in those. The theme this year is the power of collaboration. So it's really talking about how the community can assist, how officers can work
3: collaboratively with social services organizations, uh, with media, with uh, everyone Now, I also understand that on the second day of the conference, there will be an opportunity to earn a Psychological First Aid Certificate. What is that?
8: Correct. Uh, Psychological psychological First Aid is a resiliency-based program for people that offer prevention and coping strategies for dealing with different types of stress resulting from various forms of trauma. It's basically a technique to reduce the occurrence of post-traumatic stress disorder.
3: And if our listeners want more information about this conference or about Victim Services of York Region, where can they go? So
8: for the conference, uh, we are quite thankful to our community partner, York Region Police, who are hosting the page for the conference. So it, uh, for the conference itself, the website is www.yrp.ca backslash Week. And for our organization, it's dot org.
3: Jillian, thank you for joining us on the feed and especially for the work that you do.
8: Thank you so much for your interest in us and having us on. It's such an honor and a pleasure.
3: You're listening to The Feed on 105.9, the region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region and beyond. If you have an old cell phone sitting in that junk drawer,
6: here's a way to clean it out
3: for a good cause.
6: We are now in the day of age of smartphones. Everyone is carrying them. There is even a study that said there are more cell phones in the world than humans. Now, I know everyone likes to sort of refresh their phones every so often. If you have just purchased a new phone or you have one that's sort of hanging around at home and you're thinking about throwing it away, do not. There is a great use for it at the CNIB. I'm going to talk more about that right now. Joining me to chat today is Suzanne Dekeri Zandenbrook who is with the CNIB. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right, so first let's let the listeners know what the CNIB is all about. The CNIB Foundation is a national
9: not-for-profit organization uh, that empowers people impacted by blindness to live the lives they choose. We're funded by charitable donations, and we're enabled by the selfless contributions of our volunteers uh, who help us build our innovative programs and deliver our programs and drive
6: advocacy for change from coast to coast. Awesome. Okay. And so how did the CNIB come about? Uh, Where did the idea come from? How long has it been established for?
9: The CNIB is an organization that is now over 100 years old. And, uh, the work that the CNIB does, we're, we're mostly known for the work that we do in our rehabilitation, which is providing, uh, services to people to learn how to live independently again. Uh, so that would be orientation and mobility independent living skills, and we work with people on employment and preparing them for um, going into co-secondary or to uh, exploring new careers. And a big part of that is learning to use all of the new adaptive technology that's available and making sure that people know what's out there and what kinds of tools can
6: support them uh, to be as independent as they want to be in their lives. That is awesome. And I, I love how it's also in a way sort of breaking barriers, too, because uh, most people who think that for those who may be visually impaired or even um, full, fully blind uh, may not have the ability to sort of live on their own, if you will, and, and sort of maybe um, need an extra hand here and there. But it seems like the organization is really um, trying its best to help those to sort of gain that independency back.
9: Absolutely, and technology can be the great uh, leveler of the playing field when it comes to uh, people with sight loss. Uh, technology, again, it can really open doors for people to enable them to be as independent as possible, but only when it's accessible, available, and affordable. So we're working to connect people of all ages with the technology they need and they want to help them build their skills, uh, and we're we're helping to break down some of those um barriers to access and barriers to affordability, quite frankly, as well.
6: Definitely. Okay. And so I love how you mentioned technology there. That's a perfect segue into the Phone It Forward uh, initiative. What is that all about?
9: Phone It Forward gives Canadians a unique opportunity to donate their gently used phones, receive a tax receipt, and empower people who are blind in the process. So it is so much more than a phone recycling program. Smartphones can and this impact on the lives of people who are blind, to do all kinds of things that they might have felt a big challenge before. Um, so given that, we've partnered with Fix Wireless Repair, who are an organization who refurbish smartphones, invites them to the highest data security standards, and we then provide them to people with sight loss who need them, along with the technical training and a discounted maintenance and data support plan.
6: Wow, that is awesome. Okay, so how long has the Phone It Forward program been in place? Phone It Forward was launched in September of 2018. Pretty cool. Okay, and so... Um, How would then a resident be able to sort of donate the smartphone? And even before that, um, is there a timeline on how old the smartphone has to be? Um, If somebody has like a flip phone, can they donate that? Or is it um, a smartphone from a a certain sort of year, maybe let's say 2008 and up?
9: The way we're asking people to think about it is the rule of five. If it's five years old or less, then it's most likely going to be eligible uh,
5: through our program.
9: So we're looking for gently used smartphones. Um, they can be iPhone 5 or the Android equivalent uh, or higher. And iPhone 5 is the baseline of what we're looking for. Uh, so, again, if it's if five years or less, then it's most likely eligible. To donate a phone, you would follow the following easy steps. Register your donation. You can either pop into a CNIB office or visit phoneitforward.ca to register your donation. To pick up an envelope, and this is the envelope that you would put your phone donation into, you can pick a prepaid Phone It Forward donation envelope up from one of our sponsors at a wide variety of locations across Canada, including Fixed Wireless Repair, Penguin Pickup Locations, and CNIB offices. We also have a partnership with libraries across the GTA and for a list of participating library branches, you can go back onto phoneitforward.ca to find out. Uh, And then you're going to send your donation. You're going to pack your smartphone donation up, uh, sign the documents, and pop them in an envelope and pop it in Canada in a any Canada Post mailbox. Um, There's some important information on phoneitforward.ca about preparing your phone for a donation, so it's really important to just make sure that you check off that list of what needs to be done before the phone goes into the envelope and makes its way over to us. Uh, And then the final step is just uh, receiving your tax receipt. When your device is received and evaluated to confirm that it matches the information provided to us, we will send out a tax receipt for your donation.
6: Awesome. Okay, perfect. And I love how you mentioned that too, that there has to be a checklist before you sort of uh, donate it just to make sure that your phone is sort of in tip top shape before you send it out. Because I was just about to ask a question. um, What if maybe the phone is all fine, but maybe there's like like a technical problem with it? Like, um, maybe the phone is, the screen is cracked a little bit. Should they sort of fix it before sending it over? Should they just send it over as is? And um, the uh, company that you're working or partnering with will fix it and then give it to you guys? Uh, What would they do then?
9: Well, the checklist actually lets you know. It kind of runs through a bunch of questions about um, the condition of the phone. So once you do that checklist, it lets you know at the end if it's an eligible phone or not. So you don't really have to worry. If your phone does have a crack on it, that's okay. If it meets a lot of the other criteria, it's probably still going to be an eligible phone. Um, and then having the information, registering your donation is important because if we have your contact information and something's been missed in the process, like perhaps you didn't take your PIN off and we can't actually get into the phone, we can contact you and we can get that information. And then we don't. it's not a wasted donation. We can actually... Uh, get the PIN from you, and and open the phone up. So providing your personal information when you register the donation is really, really important so that we can get back to you and communicate with you if there's any issue with your donation. Uh, And then registering it online and going through the checklist is also really important because it'll let you know if it's a phone that's worth donating, and it'll also let you know how much you can expect to receive
6: back as your tax receipt. Awesome. Okay, makes sense. And so then where also then can residents go for more information about CNIB?
9: For more information about CNIB, visit us at cnib.ca and please visit phoneitforward.ca for more information about the program.
6: Awesome. Suzanne, thank you so much for letting us know about this great program, the Phone It Forward program. Once again, listeners, if you know you have a smartphone at home, don't chuck it, donate it. It's going to go towards a great cause. Thanks again, Suzanne. Thank you.
3: Another good cause to tell you about next on the feed takes us to Georgina and a new build with Habitat for Humanity. Joanne Janikopoulos, their regional director, explains. Joanne, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks for having me. For our listeners who don't know much about Habitat for Humanity, maybe you're familiar with the name, tell us a little bit about what is it? So Habitat for Humanity, GTA,
2: is a not-for-profit. We are a registered charity, and we bring communities together to help families build strength, stability, and self-reliance through affordable homeownership.
3: And how are volunteers brought into the mix?
2: So we mobilize volunteers and individuals to help us build decent, affordable homes, and that provides a really a solid foundation for families to, to do better and have more productive and healthier lives.
3: In terms of volunteer hours, because you hear a lot about that, how does that um, uh, roll into the build and help the families get started?
2: So for our Habitat homeowners, as a down payment, they are required to volunteer 500 hours. We have a really unique mortgage model where the monthly payments are 30% of their total household income. And there is no interest. So this really makes the mortgage model very affordable for them. And it's geared to their income. So they're able to buy their own home.
3: Now, who are you, who is Habitat building homes for? So
2: we are building homes for working, lower-income families in need of a decent place to live. Often you'll find families living in overcrowded or unsafe conditions.
3: And often they're just too unaffordable in New York region. And I've heard that Habitat, you know, is is building more than just homes, right? Habitat builds
2: more than just homes. Every Habitat house has a lasting transformational impact on children, their families, and the wider community. For example, families are safe from the cold of improperly insulated apartments that are in poor repair. We see often children's grades and confidence improve overall health improves for the family, their family income rises, property taxes are paid, uh, people don't go to food banks anymore. These are just a few of the benefits.
3: So what's the build history for Habitat in York Region? And I know that there's one coming up uh, in Georgina, right? Correct. So in York Region,
2: Habitat GTA has built 19 homes. And this includes Georgina, Newmarket, Aurora, East Gwillimberry, Witchurch, Stovall, and Markham. And our newest build, which has just started, is in Sutton, Georgina on Dalton Road. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Sure. So we are building six two-story townhomes on Dalton Road in Sutton. We are inviting volunteers and corporate partners to come out and build with us on site this summer. And our plan is to have the homes ready for families to move in by
3: December, just in time for the holidays. Now, if our listeners want to get involved and participate in the builds, how can they do that?
2: So, there are several ways that your listeners can get involved. So, first of all, you can make a donation to the Dalton Road Campaign to help support the build. Habitat GTA is very grateful for the financial support of our donors. Every donation counts, uh, large or small. Secondly, you can ask your employer to sign up for a Habitat Build Day. This is a really unique, great team-building experience, and you don't need to have any construction experience either. And lastly, you can also sign up as an individual volunteer and bring your
3: family out to help us build these homes this summer. I love the fact that you said you don't need construction experience, so anybody can get involved and participate.
2: Anybody can get involved. So we provide all of the equipment, so hard hats, steel toe boots, uh, construction tools, safety goggles. All you need to do is come on out, bring your energy, and join the Habitat team, and uh, somebody will be there to help show you what you need to do, and you'll, you'll build. It's truly... A once in a lifetime experience. I tell everybody should go and participate in a
3: habitat build that'll make you feel good. It is great. So, if our listeners do want to get involved and jump in and, and participate, how can they do that? So, you can visit our website
2: at habitatgta.ca/dalton, or you can call me directly if you have something in particular you want to speak about at 416. extension 4127. And just before we wrap things up, Joanne, what's happening next week? On May 28th, we have our Dalton Road Groundbreaking Ceremony. Mayor Quirk of Georgina will be joining us. There are going to be many people there. Um, The families will be there, the ones that have been approved. It's a great moment to come on out to take a look at the lot on Dalton Road and see where we're we're building and um, participate in that event. That's terrific. Good luck on that day.
3: Thank you. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 105.9theregion.com for a replay. Next, Music Coordinator Christina Lavecchia with new sounds from Shea Esposito.
10: 21-year-old singer and songwriter Shay Esposito and her bandmate Phil are here in studio. Thanks for being here, guys.
0: Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.
10: Shay, you're from Edmonton, Alberta, but you're both currently in Toronto promoting your latest single, Feel Something. How has your time been here so far?
0: Been amazing so far. It's always a blast. I love being in the city.
10: What was the inspiration behind Feel Something?
0: Well, um, I just kind of wanted to write something around like a chess kind of medieval kind of theme, um, but then it turned into this commentary kind of on I guess the the need to how do I explain this? A need to kind of manipulate and use people when you're trying to gain something for yourself um, and kind of how that's it's a natural response uh, you're tr- when you're trying to gain something from somebody else uh, but how that interaction always ends up pushing people away it kind of turned into that.
10: (laughs) Was it from personal experience? Where was it drawn from?
0: Yeah, actually, and I I didn't go into this song thinking that I was going to write something so personal, but as I was going through it, I was just like, what am I feeling right now? (laughs) And then it just ended up being, yeah, something super close to home. You released your first album
10: at the age of 16, and your second one at the age of 19. How do you feel you've grown as an artist over the years?
0: Well, I think with the first album I was um, relatively new to writing in general, so it kind of of just happened whereas when i went into the second one i had more of a vision for the sound that i wanted um more of a vision for who i wanted to be as an artist and that has just grown so much in the last couple years especially um especially working with a band as well and you know actually doing things live because i you know i didn't do that that much before but um yeah i've just i've learned where i want to go and i don't think i'm quite at the artist I want to be yet, but I think every song brings me closer to that.
10: And you've been working with Phil for how many years now, or for how long?
1: Two years now? Yep, yeah. we're going on about two years. Yeah.
10: Nathan, how has it been so far for you?
1: It's been an amazing journey. Uh, I remember when she first asked me to be a part of the band, and I was like, I don't know if I have the chops. I don't know if I have what you're looking for. And then I just gave her a little showcase of what I could do, and she's like, You're in. You're in.
0: <laughs> you're hired. Yeah. yeah. He tells me, Oh, I don't know. I don't, like, I don't know if I've got what you need. I'm like, Any place for me? I'm like, What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? You're perfect. And he's done so much for the music so far, like so much for me.
10: And I'm sure you guys learned from each other along the way too, and you know, your sound grows and. I think
0: we've absolutely. grown
1: into a
10: pretty solid team. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You're also a youth mental health advocate speaking about anxiety and depression, which affects a lot of Canadians and people around the world. Why is it important to you to be an advocate?
0: Well, I have um, a lot of personal history with it. I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety when I was 11. Um, and so for me, being in music that's kind of what got me through, um, especially writing, like writing songs was so therapeutic to me. It was the only way that I could get out what I was feeling. And I just think it's so important to share that and share with people like, yes, talking about it is important. Yes, getting professional help is important, but there's um, so many other outlets as well that help you in maybe little ways, but all of those little things build up to so much. Mm. And yeah, I just think, I think music more than anything just really has the power to change things mm. and change how people are feeling. And so I want to share that. How has response been? Really, really amazing. Yeah. Um, I've been doing it probably five years, speaking at schools and uh, yeah, mostly to students, sometimes to educators. Mm. Uh, and it's just been, it's been so amazing. Uh, I've had such amazing responses in every single show I do, I get at least a couple of kids coming up to me and saying you know like I just I feel that thank you for being here I feel like you were speaking right to me and it's just such a powerful thing
10: to give listeners and your fans a chance to get to get to know you a bit more I'm going to ask you both a few what if questions it's a it's a fun game Mm -hmm. (laughs) so what if you weren't in the music industry what industry would you you think you'd be a part of
1: or work in? Good question. Um, it would have to do something with kids, um, kids that don't have a proper or um, a very nurturing home environment. Um, I just love people and I love kids and so giving them a an adult presence in their life that would tell them that they're loved, that they're valuable, that, they, that they're that they worth it, that their dreams are possible. So I think I'd probably do something like that.
0: Does it count if I say something in writing? Because <laughs> uh, yeah, the next thing would be, I mean, I obviously want to be an author, but if, if it wasn't art specific, uh, I always wanted to be an editor, uh, like a magazine editor editor mm-hmm. or a, uh, fiction editor if music didn't work out does that count <laughs> yeah i know it's fine
10: <laughs> it's okay now at least you know that you love what you do yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> what if you were given the chance to live anywhere in the world where would it be and why that's
0: tough I don't know about maybe permanently, but I'd love to live in London for a while. I'd love to live in Australia for a while. Uh, I'd love to live somewhere amazing, but also English speaking. <laughs> Wherever you.
1: Anywhere there's a beach and yes. sun, like eighty <laughs> to ninety percent of the year.
10: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. those are good things. Yeah, They're to consider. Things, yeah. And I have one more. Uh, what if you were taken on a surprise uh, road trip, but you could only bring three items with you? What would they be?
1: Okay. <laughs> Is there a Walmart nearby?
10: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the necessities in terms of, like, okay. that you can't, like, live without, let's say, even for a week, two weeks.
0: I guess the number one thing for me would either be, like, my laptop or... um Do you have any pets? Or, yeah, I've, I've got a cat and I've got a rabbit, <laughs> and I don't think I could go without them. <laughs> uh But something for writing, because I just can't... Go without jotting my thoughts down. Um, I read a lot too, so probably something mm. like that. I'm thinking like necessities now. I'm like, oh, well, I'm in school, so I need my textbooks. I need yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do
1: you think? uh I think I would take a keyboard if I knew that I was away for that long. Yeah. Probably my iPad so that I could jot down my, my thoughts as well to be mm-hmm. able to communicate to later fill what I was thinking in that moment. Mm. Um, maybe a frisbee. Well,
10: that's fun. Yeah, simple, but yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: For when I'm on the beach. Yeah, exactly.
10: Oh,
0: yeah, exact, yeah <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah.
10: <laughs> so the single "Feel Something" is currently out now. Uh, what are you most looking forward to now that it's out?
0: Well, we've got a rap version coming out. Nice. Yeah. May, so that's what I'm most excited about. Um, I'm also working on. I'm working on a remix with a friend um, mm-hmm. so we'll see how that turns out and a music video is coming out and then I've got another little uh, I've got another single coming out in June and a short like a three song EP after that I've got a lot in the works right now so I'm excited about everything <laughs> <laughs> great
10: well thanks for being here guys
1: great. absolutely Thank you, so for you for your time us.
10: I'm music coordinator Christina Lavecchia you're now listening to Shea Esposito's latest hit Feel Something on 105.9 The Region
11: Thank you.
3: our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a
11: story idea
3: or community event, head over to our website 1059theregion.com I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.